Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Tennis Weekly with Joel and Kim, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. On today's Tour Catch-Up. Next-gen hopefuls take home tour titles. The WTA Final Eight is set. And Simona Halep is provisionally suspended from competition. Chris, today is the 25th of October and we are here as always to catch up on the week in tennis at Tennis Weekly HQ. We are getting to that time in the season. Finals are very nearly upon us. The ATP finals, the Fort Worth WTA finals, Billie Jean King Cup finals and the Davis Cup finals. But of course, we have some big tournaments to talk about before then. On the men's side, we've got Vienna and Basel on at the moment. And last week, we had the last W1000 tournament, Guadalajara in Mexico. Jesse Pagula, your champion, first title of the season. We also had Felix Auger and Yassim go back-to-back titles on the ATP Tour this week with winning at the European Open against Sebi Corda. And we also had the next geners Lorenzo Massetti and Holger Rune win on the tour. So it's been a very interesting week and interesting for you because you were actually at one of these tournaments. You were in Stockholm, I believe, for the uh, the Stockholm Open 250. I was indeed. I was courtside for that win for Holger. I saw all the quarterfinal action as well as the finals. Um, didn't fancy checking the semifinals as well. Thought I'd seen enough after the quarterfinals. <laughs> but um, I, I made the prediction uh, amongst the, the people I was traveling with for the final and the winner. So I, I won a croissant out of it. So <laughs> it's, maybe that should be my highlight of the week, Joel, because there's nothing better than a free pastry. Well, I mean, I mean, Holger Rune, I was watching some of the, the highlights back and Holger Rune just seemed to be on an absolute warpath. I mean... Patrick Muratoglu at the moment, I know he's he's in the news for other reasons that we're going to get onto with regards to Simona Hallett, but it also seems that he's working his magic on, on Holger Rune quite quickly because that was a really, really devastating performance, wasn't it, against Sissipas in the final? I was blown away. Um, mm. I've I was. Seen quite... Stefanos Sissipas was. I mean, he really was. Um, I mean, it was unbelievable. And I mean, I've got... Uh... I mean, I've seen quite a lot of live tennis. I don't think I've ever seen um, a 19-year-old play mm. as complete tennis as that. And yeah. I've seen Carlos this year. So I was yeah. really, really impressed. And I can't <laughs> wait to talk about it a bit later on. Yes, we're going to be talking about that. Of course, we're going to be talking about all the finals action. But before we do, we're going to be talking about our highlights from the week. I, I will say before we get into this, Kim, unfortunately, uh, has not been able uh, to make it. Um, she has actually been stuck. She's been marooned outside london travel and train issues have struck so it does mean this episode is going to be just the the joel and chris show but hopefully kim will be back next week but chris without further ado what was your one highlight of the week 
Well, I mean, I had to talk about um, Caroline Garcia, and I think maybe Kim's <laughs> avoiding this one because after Sloan got that win against her. But I'm not talking about that match. I'm talking about a match with Rebecca Marino. Um, okay. And something that I thought was particularly interesting about this one was that Rebecca Marino hit 24 aces in that match and still lost to wow. Caroline Garcia. Um, it's joint fifth on the all-time list. And I started looking into this and I thought that seems like surely not many people can lose a match having hit that many aces. And um, interestingly enough, of the top 16 matches with the most aces on the WTA Tour, um, the one who hit the highest aces has lost. So uh, you need more than a serve on the WTA Tour to get the Mm. W. So that was my highlight of the week was that despite having um, a serve that was on song, it does not mean that you're going to get through, unlike on the ATP tour, I'd say. <laughs> I, I am loving this list because I'm looking at it right now and Christina Pliskova's top of the list, 31 aces in a match and still lost to Monica Puy. And it happened the second time as well, 28 aces, which I find out that's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. They're both against, I mean, Monica <laughs> Puig, That's that is madness when you think about it. And they're mm. three years apart. But clearly there's something about that matchup that just brings out the best mm. in um. The, the second Pliskova's uh, first serve. <laughs> I know, I know, exactly. But, uh, I mean, yeah, that was... Uh, that's very niche, actually. I mean, Rebecca Marino, we saw her at the Billie Jean King Cup finals last year in Prague. We are going to be there this year. But She better yeah, be there, Joel. She, she, I I'm hope a, so. I do you know what? When we saw her in person, I didn't think she had that that big of a serve, if I'm being quite honest. She definitely played first strike tennis, but I did mm. not think the serve was kind of the... The standout, the, but the, yeah, I didn't think it was the standout show for her. But uh, no, I, I thought maybe, the forehand was pretty handy. I mean, maybe she's just uh, you know improved it over the last you know over the last year or so. She's become a bit of a favourite on the podcast now. Mm. So wherever I can get in a Rebecca Marino <laughs> reference, I will. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're going to be asking me about my highlight of the week, I will be Joel. Yes, I'm. I'm going to go much broader than that, and I think it's going to yes. be a lot of people's uh, highlight of the week. And for me, it has to be. The Napoli Cup organisation, oh, which I mean, has been—I wow. mean, this has just been an absolute circus. I think uh, throughout the week, I think it ended on a really good note. We had a great final, an all-Italian final uh, between Massetti and Berrettini, but on really a flat getting, court in the a, end. <laughs> yes, on a not flat a bumpy court. court, and on a on a dry court as well. Because uh, I mean, yeah, it was just a sh- it was just a shambles from from the off. Really, I mean. Well, I say from the off. I mean, even before the tournament, um, there were you know there were issues with the courts, um, the hotel room. Um, sorry, the the hotel situation. Uh, yeah, I mean, where 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 do I start with this? Because they had to move qualifying um, to somewhere like forty minutes from the venue. This is an event that was granted a single year license, so you would think, you know, they were you know wanting to put on the best show possible and you know to give it its dues looking at it it looked fantastic you know on the seaside great backdrop reminded me of like a monte carlo-esque backdrop um yeah with the, the ocean without in, the, in the court background. surface <laughs> but yeah without the cops obviously hard court i was sort of thinking you should just never have hard courts in in italy and you know maybe this was just put a hoodoo on that it should always it should it to me, it always almost kind of feels like it should be clay, but um, indoor only. <laughs> but the court surfaces, yeah, were, were the big biggest issue because players got there. There was rain. 
Um, humidity was a factor as well. Players were just kind of complaining, didn't want to play on the courts, um, didn't want to practice on the courts. And yeah, it looked, I mean, to be honest, at times to me, it just looks like it was this, this event actually wasn't going to get finished. I was, I've never seen anything like it. I was looking at pictures of the court <laughs> surface and I thought even without any expert expertise in laying anything in my life, I'm pretty mm. sure I could get a flatter court than that. <laughs> it was shocking. And then as you see how this set Twitter alight, um, I think maybe with the, having the, the license for one year, they thought, why invest? We're not getting it back. So <laughs> I know. let's see what will happen and let's get some courts from Florence. Well, I mean, it was interesting because the president of the Italian Federation, Angelo Binaghi, said the ATP asked me to move the tournament from Naples. Uh, I think they asked him to move it to Florence. I said no. Now the ATP will give us a nice fine. So they're obviously not in the... They're not bedfellows at the moment. But um, yeah, it was uh, certainly yeah very, very circus. I understand that, you know, these single-year licenses, I think there is, you know, a little bit of trepidation there. And I think we've seen... You know, we've seen examples when it's been absolutely fantastic. And I think about, you know, Astana and how, you know, that has grown into, you know, a great event um, over the you know last few years. Astrava, we've loved Astrava as well, haven't we? Yeah, yeah exactly. And they've, and they've really kind of grown as tournaments. But I always think you're always going to get, you know, one that actually goes the, you know, goes the other way. And yes, I think, you know, the situation in terms of, you know, making the calendar a little bit on the fly sometimes um, results in these situations where these events, you know, are promised, I think, you know, very late in the day. It's like, yeah, we can put on an event, put on an event within, you know, three months and it feels like it could be quite rushed. So I think there's a little bit maybe of learnings for either side, you know, maybe from the Italian Federation side in terms of who they choose to to lay their courts, but also from yes. the from the, you know, the governing body side in terms of like guys we need to make sure that they've got enough you know in planning time to just kind of get it right because yeah it just didn't look like a good it wasn't a good look all you know all round it's i think that's true we'll be back to a, a 25k do you think next year for that yes. one well yeah exactly well what do you think what would you do if you know they've mm. they've already said that they're gonna be um they've already said that they're gonna like apply and hope that they can come back next year. And I think it's good that they ended on a really positive note. Great final. Massetti went round on his bike. I think <laughs> it, this is a thing of legend. This is a thing of legend. Mm. Bring it back. Yeah. What will the court surface be like next year? It's already I mean, it's a PR quintessential, story. It's quintessentially Italian, right? Oh, this is um, this is exactly what I was looking for in this very short Italian swing mm. before we head yeah. to Turin. I think it's... Um, couldn't have asked for more. I was going to say one thing, Joel, on um, I should have said as another highlight, I did get a nod from Norrie as the sole Brit in the Stockholm crowd. Oh, love so that. I love did get that. the acknowledgement. And at the time, I think I was actually, I, I was cheering for him. And I don't think I actually looked myself. And the, my, the people I was with um, were like, you completely just blanked him. So that's kind of <laughs> you great to get a nod. You blanked Look, really with the Tennis Weekly to. podcast, we need, to, we need to be forging... I was, I was friendships, about, yes, relationships yes, with yes. players, and you've just yes. blanked Cam Norrie. Yeah, but I did cheer much louder after that as well because I realised <laughs> the error of my ways. But that has to get a special mention. Okay, okay. Well, Cam Norrie, I apologise if you're listening. I, I also apologise on, on, yes. on Chris's behalf. Yes, but on behalf of um, Tennis Weekly <laughs> and Kim. Yes, exactly, exactly. But let's. I mean, let's let's talk about let's talk about the matches and and what has happened. 
over the last week or so on the tour. Um, we're going to start in Mexico, in Guadalajara, the W1000 event, the inaugural W1000 event in Guadalajara. This was where the WTA end of season finals were last season and uh, it was such a hit that they've come back with uh, a W1000 event and we have as our champion the number three seed Jesse Pegula defeating Maria Sakkari in the final 6-2-6-3. Chris what in, in, in classic Kim words what did you make of this because the run that Jesse Pegula went on it just felt like Grand Slam champion after Grand Slam champion, after Grand Slam champion, and yeah, fantastic effort from her. Get just even for me to get through to the final, given her her position in the draw. I mean, she very nearly didn't with the mm. Rybakina result in the second round, having three match points down, and that was really touch and go. But mm. I mean, after that, as you said, she took out Azarenka. Unfortunately, she took out Sloane Stevens, Andrescu. <laughs> she's taking out all my favourites. Mm. Um, but she did say that she was saw the draw and she was um a bit annoyed when she saw it. So uh, I think it's one of those ones where she's proved kind of to herself that she could do it. And she's done it kind of in one of the toughest draws of the year. And I think when they work out, you know, the average ranking that's, that someone plays in a tournament, this has to be almost the standout um, run here because all of the players that she played, even if their ranking wasn't necessarily the highest, like Sloane or Bianca right now, I mean, the highest ranking they've been, has been very high, but very impressed by her. Um, I did not think she was a player that would play well at altitude. And by the sounds of it, the start of the week, she didn't either. Um, she'd played a few times at altitude and the balls, she said, seemed to fly for her. So she'd been avoiding it. So maybe that lack of sort of confidence at altitude kind of just let her hit quite freely. And she managed to um, come through really quite comfortably after that initial um, super tough match against the Wimbledon champion. What did you make of it? Yeah, I thought I thought it was interesting because I think you know reading and, and hearing her in interviews, she was talking about how you know the fact that Shiontek not there, Onjabor not there as well, it was really an opportunity for her to kind of you know showcase her you know her talents and be like, look, I'm the de facto you know world world number three and I'm here to kind of prove it. And she didn't let that I think you know fluster her as she went through the you know the event. And I think the fact that she had such a tough route and perhaps maybe you know, enabled her to just kind of focus and, and take it kind of, you know, one match at a time. And, um, you know, I think about her, you know, her season. And again, we talk about consistency and uh, it's almost like Elise Burton's like consistency. I think she's shown, um, you know, this year it's been it's been very, very impressive. But at the same time, it's it's almost been quite understated. I don't think like people really... Yeah, particularly I think people who don't necessarily for, follow the tour kind of week in, week out, they're just, you know, they're not really that impressed by consistency. And even though it can pay dividends in terms of, um, you know, rankings, I think about kind of the, the achievements of American women, um, you know, of the tour this year, you know, you think, I think, you know, Serena Williams, I think Danielle Collins, uh, you know, at the start of the year, Coco Goff. And I feel like they've had like bigger achievements that are more, noteworthy and I'm almost like I almost feel like it's put Jessie Pagula's kind of performances her consistent performances kind of week in week out a little bit you know in the you know in the side street almost yeah I think what's really nice about it is that um she's been able to ever since the restart after the break with um COVID-19 she's been able to build on what she's done so I think there's a quote where she said um that she's kind of been able to prove people wrong and prove herself wrong a little 
a little bit and keep building. And I think that's something that's so impressive and we see so often on the WTA tour mm. that people don't build on a success. They might have sort of a flash in the pan. They might have a great tournament. I'm not saying that there haven't been other factors for someone like Collins this year. And she has had some some good results. But I think after that final, we all thought she might push on a bit more than she has. Um, obviously, with uh, Rybikina, it's been a slightly similar thing in quite difficult circumstances around a no-points Wimbledon. And then kind of Radicani, we so often see players... Um, not back up some of the results and start to build. So I think 2023 will be really interesting to see yeah. if she can keep building. Um, and I think she might do some good building at the end of season championships with this sort of confidence. Yes, yes, I, I agree. I'll be, I'm really intrigued to see how, you know, she gets on, um, you know, next season. Because she's, I think she's got a great, you know, mentality and approach. And I also think like, again, I feel like I've banged on the trouble about this every, every episode. But I think, again, her doubles play, you know, she, you know, she plays with, with Coco Goff. You know, they've won doubles titles together this season. Again, I think her net play really, for me, is a reason that she is able to be kind of so so consistent and you know I think particularly in that final against Zachary where mm. you know a very athletic player a player I don't think you want to get into too many you know attritional baseline rallies you know from the from the back of the court and I think you know given um you know Pagula's kind of net play and her skills again she I think used that really really well to just sort of keep the you know the shot rallies down and um yeah really kind of put Sakari under pressure early and I do think you know she's got great weapons from the back of the court she's just very aggressive but I certainly think again having that doubles expertise just adds a little bit of a different dimension that I think kept Sakari thinking and ultimately I think you know she was a, a pressure that she wasn't able to deal with yeah I think it's, it's such a great point about Pagula because she's able to come to the net and she's comfortable there mm-hmm. and she's competent there and a lot of these players they might practice it on a um, on the training court but mm. when it comes to the matches that's a very different thing and if you're making volleys on a regular basis on a week in week out basis on the tour um, and you've got great sort of uh, pace and flat sort of shots you're able to um, really do some great approaches and if you give someone a target in a, in a final it can go one of two ways either mm. they're going to be nailing it or if they're not it's going to cause them sort of increased um, concern there and I think that's something that we saw that there were a lot of errors especially in that sort of area for Pagula but you mentioned Maria Sakkari and I think this is the first time that I've seen her win clutch matches in such a long time mm. um you know that victory against Collins yeah uh, three sets five seven six three six three that they're playing for a place in the WTA finals and then yeah it's big pressure the winner exactly the winner of Kudamentova versus Sakari that was for the final place whoever mm. won that would qualify um and after that second set wobble she did come through and study the mm. ship so I think for her, it it was a really important week, even though it was another finals loss. And obviously not winning these titles is a a big blow when it comes to being kind of recognised as being one of the top players. I think that's why when, you know, we're going to be coming to Fort Worth, you know, very soon with the, you know, the the top eight. It's, It's for me why, you know, listeners might say this is a bit harsh, but in that top bracket, it's still for me like Maria Sakkari just makes up makes up the numbers versus mm-hmm. is a real threat like a you know like a Jesse Pagula or even a Sabalenka when you think about it on her mm. day with her weapons yeah she can be a very difficult opponent in the same way that I think that Maria Sakari is a, not quite the same threat because you do always know you will have those mental wobbles mm-hmm. there um so I I do agree I think it's one of those um 
the people that you see in the tour finals where maybe this could be an opportunity for her because mm. of the lack of pressure. Like she, she wasn't going to be there and no one's necessarily thinking she's going to do anything particularly impressive there. So um, maybe it will free her up, but I think it's um, it's still good that the, the last final spot was won um, by someone who, you know, pulled it out of the bag rather than everyone losing and then it defaulted to whoever <laughs> was next in the race, you know. It did look like that might happen. Yes, I mean, that is very, very true. And just before we move on to the, you know, the men, the men's tournaments, the, the, the 250s, one player I want to actually just single out is a player who I just feel like just brings it for some reason only at the end of the season, Sloan at the Stevens. very end of the tournament. No, Sloan Not Sloan Stevens. Victoria Azarenka. Ah, uh, yes. Defeated uh, Bedosa, top seed uh, in the second round. Bedosa re- did retire, um, you know, at the very start of the second set. But... Azarenka just then, yeah, beat Madison Keys, then beat Coco Goff, um, and then yeah, lost uh, in in the semi-finals to the to the champion uh, Pagula. Mm. But yeah, just very again, just sort of took me by surprise because she's a player who I swear we only kind of talk about, and I'm like, where where's this been? Well, where, where mm. has this been the whole of the season? Yeah, I've seen this. It's been a, a bit of a run of form in this way where. She won or she reached the final, the semi-finals of the last WTA 1000 uh, of the year. So obviously she won in Cincinnati It's an interesting strategy. Yeah, I think it's like bring your best game just before you stop playing for a significant <laughs> period of time. Um, not sure how that works. But this tournament, I think, kind of makes a bit more sense to me because she doesn't have the most sort of pop on that um, forehand and the balls mm-hmm. were really flying. Mm. So against someone like Madison Keys, against someone like Coco Goff, they really did struggle to, to find the court at times because it was firing so quickly with the altitude. So this sort of result means I can see how this could happen in the right conditions. But you can't necessarily see it across the whole season. On, on, a, on a slower court um, or something that doesn't quite match up with her game as well. But she played some great tennis. I watched some of that. And um, you, you, do, you are left scratching your head thinking, why can't she do this <laughs> week in, week out? It's why so do we frustrating. Have these... It is frustrating because she's so blooming good. Mm. And well, a player who is able to do it now uh, on the men's side... Uh, I'm talking about Felix Auger Aliassime. I mean, not long ago, mm-hmm. he was the, what, laughing stock of the ATP Tour in terms of his finals record, you know, just getting to finals and always losing. And now, all of a sudden, you know, he gets to finals, back to back finals, and he's, uh, yeah, back to back champion. Second title um, in as many weeks. I think he's on an, I think he's on a nine match win streak now. I think he won today. Um, and uh, yeah, he beat Sebi Corder in the final in Antwerp, 6-3, 6-4. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, he's like the danger player going into, well, he's the if he makes it to the, the ATP end of season finals, for me, he is the, the danger player at the moment. He is the, the form player. He's great on an indoor court. I think his serving has improved fantastically over the last, you know, over the last few months or so. I mean, I think I was reading... In this tournament alone, he hit 60 aces and only four double faults. So it just, I think, shows you the, I think, the confidence that he is playing with at the moment. And I think, you know, for me, I feel like there's a different proposition in terms of a Felix Auger Aliassime on an indoor court versus Felix Auger Aliassime on an outdoor court. I mean, that is a very good point because all of his finals this year have come mm. on indoor courts. Um, mm. Obviously, he's picked up three of them. So... And that his best is... victories, I think, because, you know, in, in the Labour Cup as well, Davis Cup. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, he's had he's some all... good wins. He's had some really good wins. Alcaraz, Djokovic, and then mm. picking up the the three titles. So 
super impressive um, from a numbers perspective. I hadn't realized he was serving as well as he was. Um, so that's, that is something that, um, I mean, that will do you very well when it comes to playing against some of those big players and some of those big mm. matches. If he can, you know, hold on to a spot and, and get himself there because I think he's someone who, it's always great to see someone who's playing well at the end of the season or peaking towards the end of the season, um, like a form player in the end of season championships. Um, so, I mean, I think, Joel, you might be agreeing with what I said on the last podcast, that I think he might be <laughs> the outside favourite if round, he makes I'm it. I'm coming round to it, you know, based on, you know, what I've seen, you know, what I've seen this week. You know, he had, again, good win against Dan Evans. And then I think Richard Gasquet surprised me a little bit in the semi-finals. He gave him a really good run for, run for his money. 36-year-old Richard Gasquet. That is, again, very, very impressive. And... <laughs> Are you, I mean, I'm coming around to your, you know, your your view on, on Felix Ojejazim you spoke about last week. Now, I've got to ask the same question of Dominic Team. Are you coming around to my view that Dominic Team has arrived, is arriving back on, on the ATB tour? He got to the semi-finals um, in Antwerp, lost to... Lost to Corda in a last set tie break. Beat Tommy Paul today in, in one of the matches of the season. I think he saved two match points. Again, one in a, a final set tie break. He beat the top seed as well, Hubert Hercaj. Are, are you are you as excited as as by Dominic team as I am at the moment? Or are you still are you still kind of like I, I need to sit in another tournament? I I am. Um... Very pleased with his upward trajectory, I would say. <laughs> this is I the most diplomatic response, I think, I've heard. That I've ever given on the pod, probably. <laughs> but no, um, no, I think he's, he's doing really well. I think when, it, when you look at the quarterfinal result, that could have gone either way. I, um, he's picking up wins now against players that he should be getting wins against. And um, that's something that's really positive. He still does have a tendency to not necessarily play fantastically well across all three sets. Mm. Uh, in the European Open, he... I think it was the round of 16. He dropped a 6-1 set against Serendulo. So there's still kind of some um, some bits some to iron out. But mm. Yeah, exactly. I, but I think they are cobras, as you say. And um, I will say, Joel, I do agree <laughs> that 2023, I think we'll see him in some major quarterfinals, maybe, I'll say. Mm. Well, we will, we will see. I mean, we had, as I said, we have had some next geners do really really well last week in stockholm and in naples holger rune and lorenzo massetti both coming out as champions you were in um stockholm for the final um yeah holger rune very very impressive i i thought it was going to be you know looking at the result i thought it was going to be you know sispas losing it again you know i think we've already i think you know my view is you know he has a mental block when it comes to finals I think he's shown mm. that you know this season but I actually just think in, in this matchup Holger Rune just played tennis that Stefano Sissipas just could not deal with yeah I think my take so I was there for the quarterfinals so um I saw Sissipas play um against Ema the sort of home hope in that mm. match and I've seen Sissipas play before um and I really was quite shocked by how within himself he looked he looked a little bit not um, not positive, looked a bit dejected. I know that he has sort of that the plod that he has where he just gets on with it. Um, but it, I think it was just really clear to me that there's a bit of a disconnect there in terms of enjoying the tennis when he's playing it. Um, whether he's overthinking it, I think it mm. could be that. Um, but it feels like he almost needs to open up the shoulders because having um, seen that match, he didn't really 
swing and go for it. I mean, Holger played fantastic tennis. I mean, the backhands are just night and day to me. Yeah. In terms of Rune and and Sissipas. It's completely true. And um, the backhand really was a big, big weakness. And um, under the guidance of Patrick Mortoglu, I mean, he he hit every single ball he could at that backhand. Mm. And the ball came back mid-court. Lots of top spin from him. Lots of miss hits. Lots of errors. And... um, Sits a pass even when he does get round the ball to his forehand. I think there's even more pressure for him to do something with it. So he's making quite a lot of uncharacteristic errors. But in that final, Rune took the ball so early and played tennis that I, I mean, I haven't seen someone um, play like that for a little while. I think it's um, completely kind of lights out tennis. And he said afterwards, um, I think the quote was that he played very close to perfection and it did feel like that. Um, and it's something that's quite strange looking at it when he's 19 versus Sitsipas, who mm. was that sort of young hope when you think mm. about it. Do you think this is Rune playing 11 out of 10 and this is almost like a freak result? Or do you believe that he can reach this this level consistently? I think he's had a big turning point from an attitudinal perspective. Mm. Um, I think it was a big wake-up call after some of the sort of contentious moments he's had about... Um, kind of with Casper Rudd, the drama that they had there and some mm. of the moments where he might not have had the best behaviour. He is only 19. And I think a big part of what's been brought to his camp is having a really positive mindset. And he's really trying to make sure that he keeps a level head. And he said that in all of his post-match um, sort of press conferences when I was there about the importance of it. And I think it, it felt like he has a real sort of positive vibe and buzz around him now. And he's really getting that from his camp as well. So I think... He had a bit of a wobble in the season after breaking through in Munich when he won that title. Mm. And um, kind of since then, uh, he has now put together some results. Like Sofia final um, was a great result and then winning here. So I don't think this is a flash in the pan. He looked like he was in fantastic physical shape, mental shape, and he was getting it done. I mean, 20 yeah. aces, uh, 20 winners, sorry. Um, only facing one break point in the final. I think top five next year, I think. Ooh, top five. Ooh, big call. I mean, I had, honestly was his... more impressed by him than um, Alcaraz when I saw Alcaraz in Hamburg. But oh, I mean, okay. that's... I mean, well, you know, he he's... did obviously get his first ever win against uh, Cam Norrie, uh, <laughs> leaving British fans very frustrated. But uh, yes, I, yes. Can't, I can't help but think in the final as well that Patrick Muratoglu, he would have known a little bit about you know, the game plan to defeat Stefanos Sissipas, given their, them having oh. kind of previously, you know, worked together. I feel like there was also that ace in, in the pack. There was a dynamic there as well that I also feel wasn't very nice, I think. Um, you know, when mm. we've had this before, uh, I think we had it with Nadal and um, and Felix when it came to sort of that sort of matchup there about where do people yeah. sit for where things. and sit? Yeah, and I mean, it's it was one where he was right by where... Um, that Stefanos had to pick up his towel from and he was mm. sort of fist pumping and cheering for the opposition. So I think that does put a sort of a bit of a different spin on things because mm. that's kind of a quite a weird situation to be in. Um, but I do I do think kind of the thing for me is with Stefanos is why is he playing sort of so much tennis? He's playing um, this week again. Um, he played, he added Stockholm to his tournament calendar as well and he's been playing so many matches and so many tournaments that you just think, Sometimes having Just a bit of time a off. Mm. Yeah, I think it seems like it's overkill, especially for someone who is ranked as highly as him. Because um, it just feels like he's not able to bring sort of that mental energy to every match. And that was a lot of parallels for me between him and um, and TFO, who had a real hiccup um, against the younger Ema brother, 
um, coming back from love four in the second set. But then in his quarterfinal against Rusevori, he did not show up at all. It was almost a little bit sort of embarrassing in terms of um, the way that he was playing. And his answer sort of afterwards was, um, it's been a long year and he's pretty tired, essentially. So well, maybe don't play. The, that's exactly what I think. Don't play the 250. Play, um, play the 500 this week. So it's a shame when that happens because you also feel like... Um, feel cheated as a fan or feel a little bit robbed as a fan when you're in the crowd. Yeah, and the whole environment that, that, that it creates is not one of um, mm. sort of the excitement when there's um, a, lot of, um, a lot of people are excited to watch you yeah. play. Well... I mean, there was one event that did have a lot of excitement and a lot of passion, and it was in Italy because organisation shambles aside, we did get an all-Italian final uh, in Naples. Lorenzo Massetti, Matteo Berrettini. Massetti, surprisingly maybe to, to some, winning 7-6, 6-2 um, on, on the hard court out there. Um, yeah, another, another up-and-comer, you know, Lorenzo Massetti, 20 years old, yeah, another player with a, a single-handed backhand, which I find, you know, is a thing of, to me, is a little bit of a thing of beauty. Maybe he's the, you know, the heir apparent to, to Richard Gasquet. But um, I think Lorenzo Massetti is also going a little bit under the radar in terms of having a, a very, putting together a very good sort of end of the season, um, you know, run. And, um, you know, against Berrettini, I always feel like you sort of know what you're going to get with with Berrettini. And, and, and Musetti was just there and, and very able to handle it. Yeah, he's putting together like a, a really good run of form. Semi-finals, um, pushing kind of deeper mm. in some of the tournaments. Um, I saw him win in Hamburg, which was very impressive again. Um, and getting it done against top players in, in big moments, I think, uh, is a really is a really positive thing at someone at this sort of stage of, of their career. As we've said with Felix, it took a really long time for them to uh, for him to get into the winner's circle. Um, and it's clear that both kind of Holger and um, Massetti are players who are able to deliver on big stages and on um, a big moments. I'm not saying that 250 is the biggest stages, but mm. the nature of a final and these finals were well attended and well supported and uh, televised in, in their um, in, in individual country. So the focus is on that and the expectation that they've had is something that we've seen players be held back by it, but it seems like they're now able to embrace it much more than kind of the mid-generation who almost immediately followed the you know, the Nadal, um, Djokovic and Federer sort of period that maybe having that gap between has allowed them to have a bit more room to to grow, develop and flourish. But I'm, I love watching Massetti play and mm. he's someone, as you say, the fluidity of that backhand is something that um, is very impressive uh, to yeah. watch. And, and I think, you know, just with the Davis Cup coming up, you know, they've got Berrettini, Sinner, both players, you know, have got, you know, injury doubts, injury niggles a little bit at the moment. You know, Sinner had that bad fall. Berrettini's foot this week hampered him somewhat. Um, it was a little bit visible, I think, during the the final. But again, Massetti coming into form, the Italian squad to me is is very, very de- is quite decent. You know, you've got three very handy singles players, I think, and then you've got Fornini and, and Bellelli to play the doubles um yeah i think they've got a very they've got a very very capable squad there providing i think if berrettini and sinner between one of them can be 100 percent fit i mean it's it kind of goes um uh it kind of goes kind of without saying just how strong they are when you look at the the people they're able to pull together and they've got so many great players who are ranked pretty highly who are all sort of there or thereabouts when it comes to um the 
the, the next generation. So, I mean, obviously there are players that we are more familiar with, like Sinner, Massetti, and there are players who are slightly lower ranked. Um, but in terms of the next gen rankings, I think I saw something which said that they are, uh, at the Italians are at two with Yannick Sinner, three with Massetti, and then they're at nine, 11, 12, 16, 18, 19, and 20. They, sh- they should just get the another Davis Cup team. They should have like an it- Italy A and Italy B team. I think they should do because they've got nine <laughs> of the top 20 um, of the next gen race are from Italy. So wow. why not have three teams, have a C team? <laughs> well, um, well uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love to see that. Fognini in the D team. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, uh, exactly. Well, well, let's let's take a quick break now, uh, but join us in the second half where we're going to be talking about Simona Halep's suspension, provisional suspension from tennis, all the Davis Cup squads and Dan Evans' comments with regards to the GB team, and also a look at the performances so far in Vienna and Basel. So do not go anywhere. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Tennis Weekly with Joel and Kim, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. And now we are going to move on to, drumroll please, par for the courts. Par for the courts is here. Chris, I have a par for the courts for you. Joel versus Chris, head-to-head, is actually on hold. Uh, whilst whilst Kim, at the moment, I'm envisaging is sort of stuck on a train <laughs> get back into London. Maybe she's thinking of the next one, you know, Maybe she's going to she really I hope toughen she it up. I hope yes. she's sort of researching on a, on a phone, but um, yeah, I do have a path for the courts for you and our, our listeners. This is going to be a traditional path for the courts. So I'm going to give you a topic and okay. I'm going to set the par score and you're going to see if you can match it. I'm going to challenge you already. Is it finals lost by Felix? <laughs> that is a, do you know what? That is a very, that is a very, very good topic, but it's not that. It is it's not, not that, that one. No, but it does have to do with tournaments, not necessarily players, but tournaments. And I saw this lovely stat on social media the other day. And this is your topic. And this is the topic for our listeners as well. So the WTA and ATP respectively had 50 and 64 scheduled tournaments for this season, excluding finals and Grand Slams, only 13 of them are combined events. And I would like you to name me as many of the combined events on the tour as possible. So events that have 
ATP and WTA running at the same time. Oh, 13 is quite a lot, Joel. So there, um, there is 13. What are we setting par at? I am going to set par. 12. I feel like you're always. <laughs> I've, I've, I feel like you're always very good at all the the topics I set. So I, I'm going to say 13 out of 13. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to say, I'm going to go with. I'm going to push it here. I'm going to say eight. Mm-hmm. That is a challenge. Okay. I'm going to say eight, but I'm going to give you one life. Okay. I may be living to regret that. I may be being a bit too nice here, but I will give you a life. So you can give me a wrong answer and you're still in the game. Okay. Can I ask one clarifying question? Ooh, okay. You said it's for this season. Yes. Okay. So it's not Correct. nothing historic. Right. No, no. And I'm making eight. Right. I've, I'm, I think... I'm feeling confident. Um, we're going to see how we do. Okay, I'll kick off with uh, Hamburg, which I attended. Correct. Yes, that Hamburg one, is on the sure list. I'm pretty sure I saw a women's match, <laughs> yes. Um, yes. I will go with uh, Eastbourne. Correct. Yes, Eastbourne also on the list. So you've got the one German answer and the one... UK answer. So that's two so far. So six more for Parliament Courts. Rome, definitely. Correct. Yes, Rome is on the list. Uh, Madrid also will be on the list. Correct. Yes, that's four. So you're halfway there. Still got your life intact. Um, I'm going to go to the US now with Indian Wells. Correct. Yes, that's fine. I think Miami might also make a feature. Correct. Yes, the Sunshine Double both on there. So that is six so far out of 13. So just reaching 50%. Cincinnati. Very good. Correct. Cincinnati on the list. So that's Uh, seven. So one more and you're already you're already home and dry with your life to spare for par for the courts. I feel like I kind of want to use a life and go for a real curveball, but um, <laughs> find out and answer myself if it's right. But um, I'm going to say Sydney because I'm pretty confident. Yes, Chris, Sydney is correct. You have reached par for the courts this week. Wow, I should have been a lot tougher on you. I really should have gone doubled. I, I think had a I couple should have gone more. Okay, I had a couple well, what more, else? Yeah. What else have What else have you got? Because there are still a few more on the list. I definitely know Washington. Yes, Washington also on the list. And then I... Oh, oh, then it gets a bit trickier. Um, <laughs> I, I The only thing I can think of as a final one is that there was the the Melbourne tournament before the Australian Open when players were in quarantine. That Would is that very count? good. Very good. That is a right answer. Melbourne, all, Melbourne is on the list. And then... I think I'm up because I think the the other ones are... There are three events left. Nottingham's a challenger for the men, so that wouldn't count. Nottingham not on there, nope. That would have been my one if I could have uh, used my pass, but (laughs) I'm out, Joel. I'm out. I've I've completed it. No more, no more. So I will tell you all of the answers. So as you said, Cincinnati, Washington, Hamburg, Eastbourne. Here's one you didn't get. Suhatogenbosch. In the Netherlands, Did not get that. Rome, Madrid, Miami, Indian Wells, Sydney, Melbourne, and 
I mean, to be fair, this is very close, very close to the start of the season. Adelaide 1 and Adelaide 2. Adelaide 1. Ad- I've yeah. forgotten that Adelaide is joint. Yeah. And they had wow. two they had two concurrent they two had two successive weeks of of tennis, both ATP and WTA. So um yeah, a lot of a lot of combined events in Australia and you know, potentially got the United Cup. Uh, I think it's called coming up as well. I, um, I don't think I'd realise how rare the joint tournaments were. You feel like because mm. obviously we're watching the events each week, they might be in similar places. But I guess there's, you know, Toronto and Montreal. They they rotate each time, mm. so that would be the a fourteenth. You if can, they could count as the Canadian Open, but yeah. different locations. You could never have enough. I feel combined events. I don't know we if love it's a combined event. I do love. I love a. I love a five hundred or a, a two fifty combined. They're just absolute for me. I just yeah, great. But um, chef's kiss. Yeah, exactly. They're they're a little bit they're a little bit rogue, but I I really really enjoy the those. I really enjoy mixed those bag. events. But um, never know who you're gonna get, Joel. Well, <laughs> yes, I'm pleased mix- that. Did you just say a mixed bag? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I love it. It love is it. indeed. Um, and um, so I will be very pleased with that result. And I'm hoping that this might mean I get a week off from being put in the hot seat um, for next week. But I don't think it does because we're prepared for Kim. But mm. we do have um, a question from the mailbag that we need to get to. And it's a particularly interesting one this week that I've actually also been thinking about. Um, and it's from Georgina, who got in touch to ask... Do you think it's right for the Wimbledon champion, Rybakina, not to be at the end of season championships? And do you think the WTA should use the same rule as the ATP? And this is a question which relates to the rule where if you're in the top 20 for the ATP race and you've won a Grand Slam, you do qualify. So that's what's happened with Djokovic this year. He won Wimbledon despite there being no points. So this is a question that speaks to, would you rather see the Grand Slam champions face off or the most consistent players across the season? So what do you think to that, Joel? And thanks for the question, Georgina. It's really interesting and it's weird that there is this difference. I don't know why this difference exists and and maybe it's something they they look at in the future. You know, we're talking about, you know, having consistency, uh, you know, across the board. And, uh, you know, for me, I would like to see, you know, Rybakiner in the end of season championships because I think it's a bit to be honest I think her season I know she you know had the high of of, of winning Wimbledon but I feel like she's going to become like a, a forgotten champion um you know in the in the future given you know how she's been treated you know she's spoken about it herself in terms of you know the court allocations she's been given um, and just generally how, yeah, as I say, how I think she's been handled since becoming a, a Grand Slam champion. And the fact that she's not going to have even like a, almost like a a full stop to her season at the, the end of season finals, to me, doesn't feel right if you're, you know, a Grand Slam singles champion. Um, I, I remember, you know, on the ATP side, we also see it a lot, I think, in the, in the doubles, uh, in the doubles event, because that is a bit more kind of, Un, you know, a little bit more unpredictable. You can get more wild cards, and you know, people not in the race. You know, um, you know, win, 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 win a Grand Slam, for example. But um, yeah, for me, I think I would like to see Ryback in it in there because I think without her being there, I just think like we're just gonna we're just gonna forget her even more. And I think she has earned her right to be there mm. by winning a Grand Slam tournament. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think it's a, a big shame, and I think it's affected her season because mm. of the fact that um, she hasn't she hasn't felt like a Grand Slam champion. And no. this would have been a nice 
sort of um, you would have felt not... like a grand slam champion if you were able to you know this would have incentivized Compete, it you know? uh, yes exactly yeah. and she actually ends the, the race at 21 so she would be just outside the 20 rule mm. but had the points counted she would have been number four in qualification above yeah. coco goff so that must be something that must be quite difficult to, to deal with but it's happened sort of quite a few times um on the wta uh we saw in 2021 osaka and radicano who both finished top 20 um, they would have got to play and we'd love to have seen Raducanu at the end of season championships because mm. the nature of the game now is we do get players who win a slam and maybe don't have as good a season the next season. So it's almost like the one chance they get to to show uh, to, for kind of an end of season showdown between all of these players. So I think in answer to Georgina's question, I think they should have the same rule um, or there should be a rule where if you win a slam, you do get to play because they do that for the, the doubles for the ATP finals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as you said. So I think it's something that happens quite more often than you think on um the WTA. And I think it's um it's a, a weird point of lack of whether it lacks continuity for for no reason. A, a very strange discrepancy, as you say. Mm. And I'm looking at I'm looking at the list of, of players who would have qualified um under the let's say let's call it the Djokovic rule, because as you said, Asaka and Radikanu in, in twenty twenty one um, Sloane Stevens in in 2017, um, you know, Lee Nar 2014, Bartley 2013, Kleisters, Sharapova. So yeah, I mean, I think for also for me, if I'm being really really harsh here, like I'd like to see a player who has a more of an unknown quantity to them in in a in a you know in a field of eight as opposed to kind of as I said making up the numbers. And I'm sorry, Maria Sakkari, but I would love to see like a a Rybakiner or a, you know Radikanu yep. or someone who is gonna I think just be a bit more of an unknown as a, almost as a wild card I think um, I know that sort of breaks I think the rules of an end of season finals and I think you know there is an argument to say that you should be rewarding kind of consistency and and you know it might feel disrespectful you know if you know someone can just win seven matches in a row but I still think that is a great achievement and I think that again could be acknowledged potentially in other ways yeah i think people want to see the champion the biggest champions of the year face off and we it is almost um the majors are having even more significance now in terms of um how players are um focusing their schedules and um not some players are playing less tournaments like i think that's probably a case where you know some of these big names have protected their health and prioritized that over kind of playing all the tournaments they'd need to qualify so I'd love to see her there. Um, it's a big shame. And uh, I think that it's added to a, a good dynamic for mm. the Djokovic side of things for this year that he hasn't um, missed yeah. out because of that rule. Um, It'll be interesting. Yeah, I mean, it will be just, I mean, last note, it will be interesting to see if any players call that out and say, you know, whether they agree with it or whether they disagree with it because it is quite a high profile um example and you know a lot of you know Djokovic critics would probably say you know he's not been on the tour enough to warrant um you know being in the in the, in the end of season finals but um you know we'll we'll have to see but Georgina unless he wins great... in Paris I guess <laughs> that's very true that is very true I mean Georgina that is a great question and listeners if you've got any other questions for the tennis weekly mailbag make sure to reach out on us um on email or social media but we're going to move on now to talking about Simona Halep and arguably the biggest news from the week in tennis was something that happened not on the tennis court and that was 
Simona Hallett being provisionally suspended by the International Tennis Integrity Agency for a positive test at this year's US Open. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) where do you start with this, Chris? This took me Mm. completely by surprise. Hallett has had a very, what, very up and down, very wild season, I feel, you know, has come back from injury, working with Muratoglu, you know, has said she had a panic attack, at, you know, at the Roland Garros, managed to come to the Wimbledon semi-finals, lost in round one at the US Open, then has had a nose job of all things, and now and then and announced the end of her season before, yeah, testing positive for I'm probably saying this wrong, but rocks rocks do stat, um, which from what I understand is something to do with red blood red blood vessels yes. and. Yes, adding oxygen is. in a little bit like EPO was my sort of analogy with with cycling back in the day. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great place to start to start with the facts of what's happened. So mm. she tested positive at the US Open and the way that it works is they test your A sample and her A sample came back positive and then her B sample was requested to be tested and that also came back positive. So it is two positive um, tests of the of the samples that were taken at the same time. Um, and as you've said, yes, it is um, something that has been used um, as a performance enhancing drugs because it is similar to EPO, as you've said. So that is something that um, it is able to kind of enhance your um, production of, of red blood cells. So it's something um, that boosts the cells, uh, the red blood cells production there. Um, and it kind of mimics sort of the response um, to kind of not having enough oxygen. So it's something that has been on the banned list um, for quite a long time. And it's not necessarily um, legally approved in all markets. So it's still not something that's legally approved in the US. So that's what the facts are. Um, it has been shown to have benefits to helping endurance. Um, Do you believe it? Because I think that the question coming out of it, you know, Simona Halep's, let's, I mean, let's hear, this is what Simona Halep, came out with she said yes. today begins the hardest match of my life a fight for the truth i have been notified that i have tested positive for a substance in an extremely low quality quantity which came as the biggest shock of my life throughout my whole career the idea of cheating never even crossed my mind once as it is totally against all the values i have been educated with facing such an unfair situation i feel completely confused and betrayed i will fight until the end to prove that i never knowingly took any prohibited substance and i have faith that sooner or later the truth will come out it's not about the titles or the money it's about honor and the love story i have developed with the game of tennis over the last 25 years chris what do you what do you make of that i think it's interesting in the way that it's worded um, of being notified that she had sort of the positive test in extremely low qu- quantity. So I I think it's something where it doesn't say um, uh, an explanation for this. I think sometimes mm. we've seen this before when there's been players like I think it's Robert Farah from um, the men's who it was a meat um, that's yep. actually caused a problem a few times. She's so not no eating explan- dodgy meat from Colombia though, is she? Is she? Is she? I don't. I don't think she is. Um, and the nature of this is not that it would be that because it's not um, hormone related in that way. So I think it's, um, it doesn't tell you a lot. It tells you that she's saying that um, that it's it's not true. Um, uh, she's saying, but I think unfortunately, the facts are that it has, she has tested positive for mm. it. So the ownership isn't being taken there. So 
Um, that's the only thing I was slightly disappointed for. I fully understand, you know, giving your um, heart. It's, a, it's her, her integrity. Of... For me, it's like her integrity is a is at stake here because she has built up for me this this image. Uh, you know, her brand and her values has very much been around. You know, an honest. You know, a fierce fighter, but also an, you know an honest competitor and you know a a positive drugs test is gonna you know scream um you know it you know flies in 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 the face of that and and for me yeah this statement very much is around you know protecting her yeah her her integrity and you know a lot of people talking about this being you know the most high profile you know positive test since maria sharapova um all those years ago um I mean, for me, what was quite interesting was the coach kind of statements. Um, you know, we we know that Simona has been working with Patrick Muratoglu this season, um, has also worked with Darren Cahill for a lot longer. And, you know, listeners, I would recommend searching out both of these statements to see what you make of them. Because I don't know about you, Chris, but the one from Darren Cahill is a lot more, um, as understandably, you know, he's he wor- he's worked with her a lot longer, but it feels like, he is absolutely, you know, I mean, it's pretty strong. He said, there is no chance, N-O in capitals, Simona knowingly or purposely took any substance on the ban list. None, zero. So he is, he is putting his stake in the ground there and being really affirmative in Simona's corner. Whereas I just feel like Patrick Muratoglu, I think he's sort of distancing himself a, a little bit from mm. the situation. Mm. I mean, I know he's in Hol- Holgerun's kind of box at the moment, but... I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what he's he's thinking at the moment um, in terms of you know, where where does this leave me? Where does this leave our coaching uh, you know relation you know relationship? You know, I'm doing well with Holger Rune at the moment. I mean, these things have I feel like have drastically changed over even just a week or so. Yeah, I think um, it they are con- slightly contrasting. I do think that it's important for both of them that they do kind of reassert her sort of integrity and the person that they know her to be. I think it is problematic at times because there is no ownership of the fact that this has happened. Um, She has tested positive. um, And unless they suggest that the nature of the testing is not correct, um, which they haven't done, it is sort of falling a bit on deaf ears at this stage to me because um, I think it's more, I want to find out what happened would be something that I'd like to hear about. And if you're a coach, that's one thing. He's not her current coach. He doesn't know... um, exactly what she takes on a what her doctor has prescribed or anything like that so it's very much saying that if she did take something she didn't know about it which is fine but it doesn't necessarily change the fact that it was in her system um i think the only thing that i would kind of draw attention to is that i remembered that she was very much um sort of quite a harsh critic of the sharapova case at the time um and i dug out those uh quotes because i thought it was quite interesting because she did play her at the u.s open on her comeback year um from the the drugs um the drug ban that she had and she said um for the kids for the young players it's not okay to help a player with a wild card who was banned for doping it's not about maria sharapova here it's about all the players that are found doped i cannot support what the tournament did but also i cannot judge um and so i think that's something that's interesting because the nature of the sharapova test was that she put her hands up and said it was something that i took as medicine and i had i completely through fault of my own did not realize that year in January, it was on the ban list, is what she said. So there was an ownership that was taken there, which I think is a bit of an... Uh, it's kind of missing from this because it's either you suggest that the test is wrong 
or you start trying to find answers because I'm not sure what you're fighting against if these two tests you're not calling into question. It's, uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> I mean, this case has got, I feel like got a long way to go and we'll have to see how um, how it develops. But um... I'd ask Joel, one question I'd ask you mm. was in terms of the timings of when she was told about this, apparently she was told on the 7th of October, but she ended her season on the, uh, I think the 15th of September. So I think some people have been sort of questioning if she did know something mm. because it seemed odd when she just got the form from um, sort of winning in, in Canada to then sort of end her season. Um, so I think it's that's something I was going to ask your take on. Do you think um, this is connected to her ending her season when she did? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, I feel, conspiracy theories at the moment. I put you on, I put you on the spot, haven't I? Particularly <laughs> in terms of, yeah, the timeline. I mean, other people talking about, is there any connection with Muratoglu? again don't don't know think you know time you know and information will help us kind of get to the get to the bottom of yes. this but um it's very yeah i mean it is it, early it's just stages, been a very wild say. it's just been a very wild season for for simona halep and um you know this is not obviously an un, unfortunate note to to end on and um i don't think anyone necessarily wants to you know some people are kind of taking sides um you know players obviously coaches um, mm. And some people are, are remaining, you know, quite quite distant from it because yes. I just think everyone is so kind of shocked by it. Given it's Simona Halep, as I say, the mm. the persona and the aura she has built up over her her career that she you know references in her her statement um, is mm. such that you just you just have to almost take a double take when you know when that that breaking news came through. Um, I think for a lot of fans, so yeah, yeah. I think. As a result, we're just going to have to, you know, take it as it comes. But I'm aware we're we're already over. We're already over our our uh, an hour hour allotment for uh, our episode. And we've still got a couple of things to touch on. We've got Davis Cup coming up. The squads have been announced for the final eight: Australia, Netherlands, Croatia, Spain, Italy, USA, Germany, Canada. I haven't got curious. I haven't got time to go through all the squads. But what caught my eye this week? Um, a squad uh, that isn't actually there but is to do with davis cup dan evans um has talked about feeling insulted at being Mm. overlooked for davis cup doubles um he feels like he should be asked more to play doubles he's never played doubles um for great britain um what do you yeah what very quickly one few sentences what do you make of that in terms of do you think that's do you think that's fair enough would you like to see davis you know, Davis Cup, Dan Evans, or do you think we're strong enough that, you know, we shouldn't have to necessarily rely on a singles player to come in and, and help out? I think it's um, an interesting take from him at this at this time, because we were talking about bad doubles decisions um, in terms of playing a singles mm. player in the form of Andy Murray. You know, yeah. that was something that we thought wasn't necessarily um, the best thing to do on paper when you have sort of the world number one um in doubles at the time, as well as kind of the form player in sort of uh, Neil Skupski at the time. So I think there's an interesting angle there that um, he's actually going against the fact that uh, he should, well, the fact that he should be picked over those players. Um, So maybe it's to do, could be connected with Murray if I had to sort of um, stipulate Mm. what this could be referring to, because that that did seem like an unusual choice, Mm. but he has had some great success with Skupski in the past. And maybe he's saying, it's about kind of who are the better pair. I mean, they've had a great result, I think, in Monte Carlo together. Mm. Um, he doesn't play week in, week out, but we all know he's how good he is at, at volleying. And 
let's be under no illusion, if the singles players played doubles, they would be the best doubles players in the world. Um, it's just a fact. So whether he should be picked or not is another question, whether he's a better doubles player. Um, but I think I would go by the, the the form book unless the partnership isn't proved not to be working um, when you play those practice matches. And if it showed he plays better with Skupski, I would I would pick them as the pair, if I'm completely honest. Oh, interesting. It's, it's so hard because Joe Salisbury de facto is, is the highest ranked doubles player we he have. Is, and he um, deserves to play, but you've got a t- it takes a team to win a doubles go, match. Yes, I know. And it almost counts against Salisbury, I think, that he plays, you know, with an American, he plays with, with Rajiv Ram. Um, yes, they've had great success together, but yeah, come, come, you know, for, for Great Britain. Um, Maybe Jack Draper. Jack Draper for doubles. You know, I <laughs> Jack love Draper's Jack answer, Draper. I mean, Jack Draper's the answer for everything, right? I mean, it's funny you talk about him because we are going to, before we end, going to be looking forward. You know, Vienna and Basel on at the moment. Question as always, what is the one thing you are looking forward to this week? I mean, that is the number one question. <laughs> um, I mean, I can, I... Go, I can go first just very quickly to get mine out of the way because it's something yes. that already happened and it was Jack Draper versus Carlos Alcaraz. Well, I was going to say that, but I thought oh, I shouldn't. Okay. But have it, have it. I'll, I've got one, I've got one, I've got one, Joel, don't worry. <laughs> well, um, as I said, Jack Draper, Carlos Alcaraz yesterday in Basel Great, great match. Um, Jack Draper, I think, has been, you know, he had a very good win against Jensen Brooksby the week before, pushed Hubert Hercage to a third set, pushed the world number one, Carlos Alcaraz, to a third set in, in Basel. I felt like it was an intriguing match in the sense that Alcaraz hasn't necessarily really got going since being world number one. So this was almost like a taking the pressure off you know pressure off things with this wing but he was certainly made to sweat I think by um, Jack Draper and um, again just had so much excitement about his potential and again how he's just not phased I think by the the situation I still think there's you know I know he's very very young but um, his third set record is still is is maybe you know a little bit concerning maybe at, at, at this time you know but I'm really clutching at straws there. I think I'm being a bit harsh I think this was a very good loss for him but yeah for me that was the you know that's been the thing I was looking forward to and the thing I, I really enjoyed uh, watching last night I agree with you I loved it was super impressed with um Jack's physicality uh, and I will I will have a different one I will say I am fascinated to see Medvedev versus team Ooh. the first time that they'd have played since uh, I think it must be the the ATP finals of 2020 i think wow um so that will be a real test and maybe that mm. will answer the question as to you know <laughs> was i was i yes. wrong to count we'll him come out back to so it. we yeah, will come it's back all, to, all it. to play for <laughs> yeah we will come back to it next week we'll see we'll see how all the action goes in basel but also in uh in vienna as well but listeners i hope you enjoyed listening to this latest episode of the tennis weekly podcast this latest catch up with joel and chris remember to subscribe to us on your podcasting platform of choice to stay up to date on all the action to come including all the finals as well we're on apple Podcasts, spotify and all major podcasting platforms out there you can also listen to us on the downloadtennis.com app and if you like what you're hearing, then make sure to leave us a rating and comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And we would love to hear from you. So follow us on social media and email the show on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. It's at Tennis Weekly Pod. 
um, email the show at tennisweeklypod at gmail.com or check out the website www.tennisweekly.co.uk. And we will be back next time at Tennis Weekly HQ for our latest catch-up, looking back on all the action at Basel and Vienna, as well as looking forward to all the action in Fort Worth, the WTA end-of-season finals. So I hope you can join us for that. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from Chris. Goodbye. It's goodbye from me, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you.